Thank you, Lord, that we can study your word. I pray help us to come with hearts that are humble. I ask, Lord, that your spirit would be here, revealing the secrets of our hearts, confirming, perhaps even lighting our hearts on fire like the two men on the road to Emmaus who said, did, our not, did not our hearts burn within us as we walked on the way? Jesus was giving them a Bible study, and the power of the Spirit was applying it to their lives. Now, Lord, I pray for that same Spirit to be in our midst as we seek to do the same thing, study your Word. Guide us now with your presence. Bless all that is said and done, and may we make decisions to give our lives to you and follow you the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I am pressing into subject matter that puts me at odds with much of the Christian world, but I need you to know that the Christian world is waking up. They're changing. I've entitled this message, Spiritual Abuse, Prophecy, and the Divine Right of Man. Last night we learned that the first prophet was Jesus. He said, in the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. Die means die. Die means perish. Die doesn't mean transition from life on earth to life in heaven or life in hell. I don't have time to repeat that message, but when you die, you're dead. You don't attend your own funeral. And I want you to think about that. When you die, your thoughts perish. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, the Scripture says. This message today is directly related to the one last night. So if you weren't able to watch last night's message, get online and watch it. But I want to talk with you about spiritual abuse for a few moments. For a period over a thousand years, the medieval church exercised the wrong kind of control over the minds of people. And when they did not do what the church said, they were persecuted, tortured, and killed. This is never to happen again in the, in the name of God, especially in this country. Our civic laws declare that there is freedom of conscience and that we cannot be compelled to worship. Unfortunately, the Bible describes a time in our future when those laws will be turned over. And once again, we will see church and state unite and there will be spiritual abuse again for the freedom of conscience and the right to worship as we believe will be taken away. This is the storyline. It repeats itself. It's Lucifer's way and it will be in the future. We are not to be afraid. Spiritual abuse was in, in the name of God, we act in ungodly ways. Now, I don't want to suggest that God himself does not hold people accountable and has this soft kind of sentimentalism that isn't really love. God himself enacts punishment. And sometimes it's pretty stern. But this morning I want to talk to you about man upon man. And in this case, I want to look at God's punishment for those who have chosen to carry on the rebellion after the victory of God is done. Prophecy and the divine right of man. What is man's divine right? When Adam and Eve chose to sin, they had made themselves subject to Lucifer. They gave over the keys to the kingdom. They signed off the deed and handed to Lucifer. They became subjects of someone they could never understand how terrible he was. But Jesus showed up in the garden and said, if you would like the kingdom back, I will pay the price. This sacrifice represents what I will do in the future. It was a lamb out of which they found coverings. The blood that flowed paid the price in symbol of what could only be paid in the reality of the life of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped in and said, you are not sold into sin. You are not absolute slaves. You are bond servants of Lucifer, for you have chosen him. But I will give you an opportunity to choose to go different. When this nation was founded, it was founded because of spiritual abuse. People from all around the world, but especially uh, the old world of Europe, made their way here to this country because there was protection from that kind of abuse. But this morning I'm here to tell you that in the name of God, the false prophet, Satan himself, has attempted and has been superbly successful at forwarding an idea that, that creates an obstacle, an emotional and mental obstacle between God and the people he came to save. You don't have to attend church. You don't have to call yourself a Christian to know that right now in the middle of the earth, there's a fire. And if you die... If you're bad, 
you'll get shot right down there. And that fire's going to go on and on and on and on and on. Except for one thing, friends, I need to tell you something. There is no hell fire in the middle of this earth. The fires of hell are not burning yet. They will not burn forever. And God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. So that is an amazing lie foisted on the minds of men, women, and children. And somehow, without even ending up in church, everybody that has a Christian background, and many who don't even, believe there is some kind of eternal torment and punishment waiting for people. Where did they get these ideas? They have been energetically put forth by the enemy of our happiness just so that we have a God whom we know is holy and righteous, but whom we just really can't warm up to. This morning, friends, this is my subject matter. I want to start with this question from the book of Job. He was in the midst of a trial. His friends basically said he was guilty of doing some heinous wrong, and God was paying him back, and he said, No, that's not the story. You read the book and you understand that it's so far off that at the end, God tells those people, in effect, My servant Job will pray for you. Job hadn't done anything wrong. He was not in a tit-for-tat relationship with God. Bad things do happen to good people. In this case, bad things were happening to good people precisely because he loved God and could endure it. But in the midst of that dialogue, he asked a very sobering question, one that ought to be logically thought about. Can a man be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? It is one of those rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no then why is it that we are so prone to believe that God who would give us breath for three score and ten, or maybe like Methuselah, 969 years, how is it that we've been willing to accept the lie that says, if you don't serve God here, you'll burn forever in hell? It doesn't make sense. If we were sitting in this room today and we could hear the cries of a torture chamber in the basement, how many of us could sit here and rejoice and sing songs and be happy and laugh at the potato farmer? I don't know anyone. There's something about a cry for mercy. There's something about an anguished scream. There's something about someone in distress that God put inside of us to respond. That's why people rush into burning buildings. That's why people do things. They do it for love. There's something about human-to-human relating that can go very wrong. And men can turn into the worst persecutors and the worst demons. But there's something about people like those firemen On 9-11, someone asked, where was God? And someone said, I'll tell you where God was. While everybody was rushing out of of the building, the firemen were rushing into it. That's where God was. I want you to understand, this world is a battlefield. There's a great controversy going on. And the devil's waging a war of ideas. In this attention economy, he wants people to get and to listen to his lies. But a man cannot be more just than God. I've been angry at some people in my life. Super angry. But I'm not sure at my angriest moment if I could endure to listen to them hour after hour, day after day, month after month, year after year, crying out for mercy and be unwilling to give them any. Wouldn't it make me more of a fiend? Wouldn't it make me more of a devil than I'd ever been before if I could actually sit there and endure it, let alone find joy in it? And yet, Protestant preachers from the earlier years of this country actually wrote, some of us have read Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What a treatise, as if somehow it isn't God Himself who's the big attraction of heaven, but not that God. Can a man be more righteous than God? Fire, an amazing device. God sent it down to consume sacrifices. God sent it down as an image, a representation of His holiness. And yes, in the presence of God, holy sinners cannot endure without the buffering experience of the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And yet that way has been opened up. And someday we will see Him face to face. Everything that God does is to ensure the security of the universe for eternity. The big question is, can God be trusted? The devil says, absolutely not. And God says, examine me. It's important for us this morning to know what the Bible says. Don't marvel at this. This is Jesus Himself. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth. How many are going to be in the grave and hear His voice, friends? Everybody. 
But they're coming up in two different resurrections. There's two different categories of people. Jesus said there's the wheat and there's the tares. There's the sheep and there's the goat. That's not changing up to the very end. So wouldn't we expect God's going to deal with those two groups a bit differently? Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. It's a sad thing. God keeps putting this off. I want to tell you something. If I knew that I was responsible for ending the sin problem, but the sin problem was in my children, and I knew that the final punishment would be death, I think I'd keep putting it off too. Peter says, God's not slack as some men count slackness, but He's long-suffering. If it was your loved one who you knew in the end was going to suffer an eternal consequence, wouldn't you say, let's give it more time. Let's give it more time. A resurrection of life and a resurrection of condemnation. Two different resurrections. One for life and unfortunately one to bring an end to life. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise how? First. There is a moment in time when Jesus appears in the eastern sky in a small cloud. It is dark, but it is rimmed with beautiful silver. It is the light. It is the group of angels carrying Jesus, bringing Him here to call us back to life. That trumpet's going to sound. The earth is going to convulse. The graves are going to break open like the chains came off Peter and Silas in the prison. Only this is the chains of death. And those graves are going to cast us out. The angels are going to be there. We're going to meet the ones we've left behind. We're going to be together and together with God. This is at the second coming of Christ. It is wonderful. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with those in the clouds to meet them in the air. The living are not going in front of those who pass through the portals of the tomb. They are woken up and raised up and then we're all lifted up to go meet Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. Two groups, the saved and the lost. I had somebody say last night in this middle aisle after the service was over. You want to know what the definition of hell is? The definition of hell will be at that moment when those who have rejected Christ are standing there seeing what they've missed out on. Friends, it's not living forever that is heaven. Yes, it's part of it. It's not just that there's no disease and no sorrow and no grief and no loss. It's actually being able to be in the presence of God. Perfect love, perfect security. The kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves, in the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. How is it that another group is standing there saying, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him and he will save us. You see, the love of wickedness blinds the eyes. If you don't love the truth, you'll end up believing a lie. And the the problem is, or the opportunity is, is that today we have a chance to say, Jesus, I'll follow the truth. I'll walk with you wherever you go. And then we don't have to be afraid. The Bible lists on the list of those who aren't in heaven, the cowardly. Last night I talked about this. Listen, it's normal to be afraid. And what makes a person courageous is not the fact that he wasn't afraid. It's the fact that love overcame fear. Can you say amen? Amen. This is how it works. You're going to be afraid at times, but what time you are afraid, turn to Jesus. For the great day of His wrath has come. And who is able to stand? It's important for us to understand the events at Christ's coming. They work like this. The believers are resurrected. The believers receive their immortality. You are not immortal. That is a Greek pagan idea. Only God is described as immortal in the Bible. You receive your immortality as a gift. Jesus gives it to you. You get it when He wakes you up or when you're translated. The wicked are consumed by the brightness of Christ's coming. They want to die. They don't want to be in the presence of God. The wicked dead are not resurrected at this time. They remain in their graves. There's nowhere for them to go. If the wicked living are dying, why would it make sense to be raising the wicked dead at the same time? They don't want to be with Jesus. They're not going with Jesus. They remain in the grave. The wicked living die. Everyone that rejected Jesus is dead. And the believers ascend to heaven with Christ. There's a thousand year period between the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. I haven't talked about that yet. I will in the future. We call that the millennium. During that thousand years, 
every human being who walked with Jesus is going to get to look at the books and they're going to understand firsthand there will be no secrets. Every database, every computer file, every hardcover book, you're going to go into the libraries of heaven. All those deeds and all those words and all those motivations that were written down that nobody else could see, everybody's going to get to see why the ones who aren't there aren't there and it's going to be very, very sad. At the end of that thousand years, Jesus is going to come down. He's going to bring the holy city down. As I mentioned to you the other night, Christ's ministry is threefold. He came as our sacrifice. He opened up a way for a living relationship as our mediator. And He's our vindicating judge, friends. As I mentioned in the meeting the other night, if God wanted to condemn us, He could have done it from heaven. He could have written us off. God comes to save His people. He does not come to condemn them. We're guilty already beyond our own understanding. But after the thousand years, after the experience which has vindicated God's choices is done, now it's time for the elements of execution to bring in. And what do they do? When they're resurrected and they see the new Jerusalem coming down, what do they do? They go up on the breadth of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. What are they waiting to do? Good question. The holy city descends. The wicked dead are resurrected. Satan and his followers attack the city. And it is at that moment, listen, if you knew you had been beat, the Bible says in the book of Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the honor and glory of the Father. Before they attack the city, they will be compelled to acknowledge the government of God to have been kind, fair, true, and merciful. And after they get up off their knees, compelled to declare God is just and kind, then they'll try to take the city. They'll approach the city, and fire will come down from God out of heaven. And what does this word here say? What will it do? It will devour them. There is no hell fire burning today, friends. When you die, as we learned last night, you rest in the grave. The Bible refers to that as a sleep of death for 66 times. When Lazarus died, Jesus told his disciples he was asleep. And they said, if he's asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus said, no, he's dead. And I'm glad I wasn't there. It sounds strange except for one thing. God is going to resurrect Lazarus and show that he has power to win over the tomb. Glory, hallelujah, it's for you and me. You've lost somebody, you might lose somebody still. But God has the power to put it all back together and comfort our broken hearts. That fire coming down from heaven cleanses the earth. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. For that thousand years between the coming of Christ and that resurrection of the wicked, during that thousand year period, the devil's on the earth with no one to tempt. Everyone's dead. That's why the Bible says he's chained up. That concept of the second death is worthy of our attention. Jesus takes no delight in the death of the wicked. But eventually, they have chosen death and death they will receive, which is infinitely better than the idea of being stuck on a divine rotisserie and God just slowly turning the handle and smiling a sly smile. Yes, that's what the devil wants you to believe. It's the worst and heinous lie that's ever been told. Indeed, there will be judgment. The first death is the death that we each die as the natural result of living in a sinful world. You may die. I may die if Jesus doesn't come soon. That's the death everyone experiences. But there is a death that is beyond that. When Jesus hung on the cross and darkness closed in about Him, Jesus thought He was actually being forever separated from His Father. That's what we call the second death. The second death is an eternal death. It's not an eternal torturing session. It's a result of personal rebellion against God, but God is good enough to say, if you don't want to be with me, you don't have to be with me. The divine right of man is the right to choose. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and God wipes every tear from their eyes. This is Revelation chapter 21. How many chapters are left in the Bible, friends? One. Revelation 22 is the end. The story of the millennium is over, that thousand-year period. Resurrected at Christ's coming if you're righteous. Sleeping in the grave if you're wicked. Resurrected to face the record of your life after that thousand years. But I want to tell you something. When the fire descends and God's people are watching it happen, their hearts are being broken just like God's heart. 
They're not on the inside cheering for victory. The victory's already been won. They've experienced it. Their hearts are in anguish as they watch God deal with a rebellion that couldn't be put down even after a confession of God's legitimate goodness and rulership. And when it's all done and the smoke is lingering on the face of the new earth before he recreates it, there's a lot of people whose hearts are heavy. And Jesus is walking around on the wall of the city, touching with tenderness the faith, the face of his dear ones, and he is wiping the tears out of their eyes. Nobody touches your face unless they're very close to you. My mama touched my face, my wife touches my face, and my babies touch my face. Those are about the only people who touch my face. Jesus comforts us. There shall be no more pain. It's all over. Look at this picture. Especially the bottom right. That chapter is in the last few years of verse history. I don't even like to put it up. Oh, man can be terrible. God's going to bring it to an end. God will do away with sin, suffering, pain, and physical affliction forever. I love this artist's rendering of Jesus saying, It's over. You're done. Would you want to torment your worst enemy? (laughs) I hope not. John Stott, once the leader of the Anglican Church, not Adventist, he's disavowed the doctrine of eternal torment. Listen to me, friends. There are more and more theologians who are saying this is logically and theologically inconsistent with the Scriptures and with whom we know God is. Edward Fudge wrote a book Interestingly, he's collected together the thoughts of many who understand this doctrine is damnable heresy. The mainstream of traditional thought has long flowed down the riverbed dug by Platonic philosophy. Do you get his metaphor? What we think about hell is like a canal that someone dug, but it wasn't dug using tools of the Bible. It was dug using pagan philosophy. And if you think you got an immortal soul that can't be killed, you got to do something with it. And that means create an eternal burning hell. Well, I'm here to tell you, friends, you don't have an immortal soul. Can you say glory, hallelujah? Now you're going to get one. Can you say amen? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. God is using today's theological engineers to turn the river's course so that the water, it finally waters the land he homesteaded long ago. Yes, God is making wrongs right. This message today is only a small part of that. John Locke, was he a believer or an unbeliever? Oh, this man was an avowed atheist. So bad that the spirit of prophecy suggests we shouldn't even read his writings. But you need to read this much because whether he's a good or a bad man, whether he's a believer or not, he's clearly an avowed atheist, but he sure has a good critique of some Christian doctrine. By death, some men understand endless torment in hell fire. And I want to know, how do you do that? I had somebody stand in this aisle last night and talk to me. And they declared that in their dialogues with somebody they cared about, that when you read John 3.16 and it said, for God so loved the world, that it didn't mean everybody. How can the ordinary words not mean what the dictionary says they mean? When John was recording the words of Jesus in John 3.16, it's not a prophecy, it's not symbolic, it's not metaphor. It's straight up English. And Jesus chose the words. So Locke wants to know, when Jesus says that you'll die, why does it have to turn into endless torment and hellfire? Good question, ought to be answered. But it seems a strange way Understanding a law which requires the plainest and directest of words that by death should be meant eternal life in misery. I think he got it. Too bad people who espouse the name of God didn't get it. Chrysostom, an early church father, warned of a fate to be ever burning but never burnt up. The damned, said Chrysostom, must not only be led into darkness, but must be burned continually and waste away and gnash his teeth and suffer 10,000 other dreadful things. If Chrysostom made this preaching popular, Augustine would make it permanent. But Augustine is quite an interesting fellow. He said, no philosophers are nearer to us Christians than the Platonist. In other words, those Platonic philosophers from Greek 
are as close to us in their thinking as, as any other philosopher. I'm sorry, Augustine, they are not very close at all. They taught a dualism between body and spirit that the Bible doesn't teach. God said, I'll make man of dust, I'll breathe into him the breath of life, and then he's a living soul. God didn't whisk a living soul out of the cosmos, stuff it into an individual. No, God gave the individual life and God can take it back. Gregory the Great, if you have an immortal soul, you might be able to take advantage of it for the benefit of the church. Create a place where you go between heaven and hell, and with enough penance or enough money, you can get out. I had somebody not long ago tell me the story of a priest that had come by and suggested that the family might make a large donation to shorten down the time that their loved one was in purgatory. That, my friends, is also heresy. No such place exists. The truth of the matter is we should learn to view death as Luther did, a fine, sweet, and brief sleep, which brings us relief from all the misfortunes of life. And we shall be secure and without care, resting sweetly, gently for a brief moment as on a sofa until the time when He shall call and awaken us together with all His dear children to eternal glory and joy. Indeed, friends, death puts us beyond the reach of Satan, especially if we're suffering disease. This is a divine benefit. We shall sleep until he comes and knocks on the little grave and says, Dr. Martin, get up. Then I shall rise in a moment and be happy with him forever. Amen. And Tyndale, the language is a little bit uh, archaic here, but follow it. The true faith putteth the resurrection, which we be warned to look for every hour. The heathen philosophers deny that, and they did put their souls did live forever. In fact, what he's saying is that the old Greek philosophers said, you live on forever and ever. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, look for the resurrection. And the Pope joined the spiritual doctrine of Christ and the fleshly doctrine of philosophers together, things so contrary that they cannot be agreed. And yet, Augustine thought for sure we were a whole lot closer. And because the fleshly-minded Pope consenteth unto the heathen doctrine, he corrupteth the Scripture to establish it. In other words, if the Scripture's got to be twisted... It's okay, but the doctrine that I've created will stand. What could be more just, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, said, than that he who sinned in the whole person, in other words, the body and the soul, the breath, which makes the soul, that the whole person should die as a whole person. Makes sense to me. The fact of the matter is, is that God can take care of the sin problem. He can take the life back and the body returns to dust. It just so happens that the rebels and this dirty planet earth will be cleansed by fire. It is evident that the saints and the believers of the old, the patriarchs and the prophets and the apostles, without exception, held this doctrine. This theologian made this statement, I believe that endless torment is a hideous and unscriptural doctrine. John Wenham which has been a terrible burden on the mind of the church for many centuries and a terrible blot on her presentation of the gospel. I should be indeed happy if before I die I could help in sweeping it away. Yes, indeed, Brother Wenham, I should be happy if I could join you. God is the only source of life, and if one does not assume the soul's indestructibility, immortal soul, as a governing principle, the final extinction of the wicked seems as natural as night following day. When Jesus said, the living know they shall die, but the dead know nothing. When Jesus said, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. How much clearer could it get? Do not follow my writings, Augustine would say, as Holy Scripture. When you find in Holy Scripture anything you did not believe before, believe it without doubt. But in my writings, you should hold nothing for certain. So I'm appealing today to all theologians and Christians who inadvertently have followed down the road of pagan philosophy, which was announced and proclaimed by Augustine. He himself says, if you examine the Scriptures and find something the Scriptures say that I don't are in contradiction to me, follow the Bible. Friends, how many here this morning want to follow the Bible? Amen? Yes, let's walk in the words. The idea of an ever-burning hell for trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine, and it is blasphemy to a God of love. So let's answer a few questions about hell. When does hell occur? Is it burning in the center of the earth now? And how long does it last? And could a loving God actually end things? It's the strange act, but it will happen. Last book of the Old Testament. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will become stubble. 
And the day which is coming shall burn them what, friends? Says the Lord of hosts. Malachi had no misunderstanding. The fire would not go on in perpetuity. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that's God's word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. How long does hell last? It lasts as long as it takes to cleanse the world of this sin. God is a consuming fire, but only to those who have not found themselves safe in the rock of who God is Himself. He's made provision to cleanse, transform, and protect us. You shall trample the wicked, Malachi goes on to say, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that you do this. Now, I want to know, is there anybody in the house that has got a fireplace in their house or a wood stove? Would you mind raising your hand? Does the fire go on and on once you throw a log in? And when it goes out, what's left? Ashes. Ashes. After the fire's gone. The wicked will be turned to ashes. They're not going to burn continually for millions and trillions of years. How can a loving God destroy those He loves? It is a strange act. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, indeed, God's not slack as some men count slackness. But He is hoping that more would turn. A loving God doesn't bring the unsaved to heaven where there is unselfish love because they are filled with selfish hate. Would you want to be in heaven with somebody who said, hey, come on, let's go for a Sabbath afternoon walk, peer over the wall and watch those wicked ones burning. Oh, they deserve it. How ridiculous. And yet that's what's been taught. The wicked shall perish. Sounds an awful lot like John 3.16, that they might have life and not perish. Life can come to an end. God is the giver. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. But what does it mean when it talks about everlasting destruction or eternal fire? That's a fair question. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. Now, let's understand this, because I don't want to rush through it. I told you that Jesus had three roles to play in the plan of salvation. He's the Lamb that takes care of the sins of the world. He's our great high priest that ever lives to make intercession for us. He opens the door for us to have a direct relationship with the Father. And He's our vindicator. So you have the work of the outer court in the sanctuary. You have the work of the holy place. And you have the work of the most holy place. The book of Hebrews will tell us that there's a sanctuary in heaven, the one that the one on earth was patterned after. Jesus went into the holy place to make an eternal redemption. These words have their meanings. The doctrines of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection, and of death, and of eternal judgment. Now let's think about this. The results of redemption and of judgment will both be everlasting. True or false? It's true. My redemption will have an everlasting benefit to me. But the judgment against the wicked will have an everlasting element as well. The question to be asked, though, is, is the punishment everlasting or is the punishing everlasting? Sodom and Gomorrah can explain the mystery. Cities around them in a similar manner, five cities, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, they are set forth as an example of the suffering of vengeance of eternal fire. You want to know what eternal fire is? Look at the life and the death, the destruction, the rise and the fall of the five cities of the plain. An eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal. You can go to the Dead Sea. You can go to the cities of the plain, Adma and Zeboiim and Sodom and Gomorrah. You can go and you can see them. They're not still burning. They were consumed by the fire that destroyed the wickedness that was blighting the earth. That's what the fire will be like. Then he answered them saying, Assuredly I say unto you, as much as you did it unto the least of one of these, you did it unto me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous to everlasting life. Are they going to be punished forever? No. But the results of their punishment will have a forever 
completeness in it. It's everlasting punishment, not everlasting punishing. And that they are enemies of the cross whose end is not eternal torture, it is destruction. Sad, but true. The Greek word for destruction is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible. It means to be utterly consumed or totally destroyed. It does not mean that you are kept alive just so you can be kept in pain. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. What is the fate of the wicked? The wicked will die. That's what Jesus said. The wages of sin is what? It doesn't say eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death. The wicked will die. The wicked will perish, Luke 13, 3. The wicked will be burned up, Malachi 4, 1. The wicked will be other consumed, 30, Psalm 37. And the wicked will be turned into ashes. They will be, according to the minor prophet Obadiah, as if they had not been. Jesus' heart will break. Someone pointed out to me in the course of my time between services, Jeremiah chapter 13. Look it up with me. Look up Jeremiah 13. I've got it right here on my phone. Get your Bibles out. I know I'm putting all the Bible verses on the screen, but it was a well-pointed-out Scripture, and I want to bring it up. It's Jesus appealing through Jeremiah the prophet that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would submit and not rebel. Unfortunately, we know, as I explained over the last few nights, they did not. But listen to what God says. And this is at the destruction of a small group of people. Jeremiah 13, verse 17 It's an appeal to repentance. It says, But if ye will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And my eye shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. Friends, when Jesus on the triumphal entry came up to where He could see the city of Jerusalem, what did He do? Everybody's celebrating. Hosanna! Glory to the Son of David. They're throwing down their robes and they're cutting off palm fronds and throwing them down before the donkey. And Jesus gets all the way up to the edge of Jerusalem where He can see across the Kidron Valley and He stops and it gets dead silent. And Jesus weeps uncontrollably. Why? Because His people will reject Him and reject life. Because He knows that 30 years from now, the Romans will surround the city and little children and mothers and fathers will be slain in the streets because the rebellious root grows into a rebellious fruit. And Rome, like Nebuchadnezzar, grew weary of it. And Jesus weeps uncontrollably. You tell me that our hearts are but a mere reflection of the heart of God. And if He's touched with our infirmities, how could we think that in time and eternity He would find joy in the perpetual suffering of a sinner, His child? Impossible. Satan himself will be totally destroyed. Jesus warned that He had the power to take care of the whole package Fear him who's able to destroy soul and body in hell. And what about that expression, unquenchable fire? Let's just take a moment as we come to the end and look at it. If your hand causes you to sin, Jesus said, cut it off. It'd be better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go into hell, into that fire that shall never be quenched. You say, there it is, Pastor Ron. Fire never goes out. Hold your horses. Their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Listen, friends, the Bible addresses this. An unquenchable fire is one that has no human hand put it out. God started it, and it'll burn until it's done. It doesn't mean it burns forever. Look at Jeremiah 17. We were just in Jeremiah 13. I will kindle a fire in its gates. This is God. And I shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. I had people in the first service who had lived in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not on fire. And don't let some of those theologians say, oh yeah, the garbage dump, the Valley of Hinnom, that's where the fire's still burning. No, friends. It wasn't a garbage dump that got started on fire in Jeremiah 17. The whole city was burned down. And when the fire had done its work and Israel had been rebuked and carted off his captives, the fire went out. 
This fire was a fire of destruction. It was a punitive action due to the constant, incessant, and ongoing rebellion of the inhabitants of the city who wouldn't listen to the true prophet Jeremiah. That fire went out. Sodom and Gomorrah went out. These fires aren't quenched by man. Jerusalem is, I, I don't know if I want to go so far to say a peaceful city, but it is not on fire. God has the ability to fix and restore. And when the fire cleanses planet earth, God's going to speak this world back into existence. And we're going to get to stand on the walls of the new Jerusalem and watch it. I want to tell you, friends, we weren't there in Genesis chapter one, when God said, and let there be light and light flooded through the cosmos. But we're going to be standing on the walls of the new Jerusalem when God speaks this world back into existence. And it will be the most phenomenal thing any human eye, aside from the face of Christ, has ever seen. What about the biblical expression of forever and ever? He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Listen, friends, you want to understand the Bible? Study the Bible. It will explain itself. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Forever in the Bible can be translated until the end of the age. It sometimes refers to a limited time. So let's talk about it. Back in the early days of Israel, if someone really fell in love with a master that was so good, now they were a bondservant. They weren't chattel property. They were not, they were not forever sold into slavery. They were there paying off some debt. But if they fell in love with the security and safety and the joy of that master's house, they could go to the door. This is one of the few places in the Bible where piercing the body is allowed. And they'll bring to the doorpost an awl. And you'll put your ear on the door of the master's house and he'll poke a hole in your ear and you will serve that master forever. Well, obviously it's until you die. The phrase forever and ever can be used to explain eternity or it can be used to explain some process until it's finished. When Samuel was a little boy, his mama took him to the temple that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Did he remain forever? No. He got old and he died. The scriptures go on to clear this up. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he what? As long as he lives. And he shall be lent to the Lord. The wicked are in the flames until the end of the age, until they are totally consumed. And let's tackle one more difficult thing if we could, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus told this to get a point across. It was not to teach about hell. The point of this parable is that this rich man supposedly has this sumptuous life. The poor man is begging from the rich man. Well, the rich man dies. And he finds out that there is a hereafter. And he says to God, send somebody back down to my brothers and sisters to tell them they're going to have to face the judgment. And the point of Jesus' parable is this. They have Moses and the prophets, just like we have Jesus on prophecy where we're studying them. If they won't listen to the Spirit of God convicting out of the Word of God, they wouldn't listen even if somebody was resurrected from the dead. If this is a literal parable, then Abraham's bosom must be very, very large. People will be in heaven and they will be able to have conversations with those in hell. And souls will have fingers and eyes and tongues. This riddled with inconsistency, if you try to turn it into something it's not. It is not a parable teaching about the hereafter. It's a parable teaching about the power of the Holy Spirit to impress through the Word of God. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus is there to remind us we should be students of the Word. And then there is this verse, cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is probably one of the saddest things God is ever going to face, but Jesus has been there ahead of time. My God, my God. He cried in anguish on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? There was a moment on that cross when Jesus thought he was paying the ultimate price for our sins. He wasn't just dying as a man. He was dying as a rebel carrying our sins. And that kind of death the Bible refers to as a second death. Jesus, when he cried out in agony about where his father was, could not see it. In faith, he knew his father was good and he went forward in love. But his father, he understood, had no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Turn from your wicked ways, God says, and live. No pleasure is God's. Now let's bring this thing in for a landing. Maybe it could get simpler than this, but I don't know how. He who has the Son has what? 
He who does not have the Son does not have life. Listen, friends. Life is a gift from God. Life is a privilege provided by the life giver. Satan can't give it, and Satan can't take it away. You're going to live not one day shorter than God ordained for you to live, and you're not going to live one day longer than you're supposed to live. God is the author of life, and God is the one who has made a way. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that you and I could believe and live. Now listen. This church is raised up to let this world know that one of the most terrible lies in all of mankind has been promulgated with such efficiency and effectiveness that somebody's got to turn, re-engineer the, the, the channel through which theological thought is flowing. We have a divine right. When Satan snuck into the garden and lied to our great, great, great patri- matriarch Eve, Jesus was watching. His heart was breaking, but He had given Eve a divine attribute. Listen to me. There are some who say that God actually created some to be saved and some to be lost. This is another damnable heresy that takes the character of a loving God and turns it into an evil God. If He brought people onto the face of the planet only for their punishment as some kind of statement about His ability to flex His divine muscle, what kind of God is He? The Bible says Jesus came came to save the entire world. He came to save you, and He came to save me. Now hear me carefully. If you try to take God's omniscience, which means His all-knowingness, and you want to push it all the way as far as you can go, then you can come up with a doctrine like predestination. What it does is it robs man of his God-likeness. God knows every decision you're going to make. So why bother letting the great controversy play out? You're just automatons at the hand of a programming God. But I want you to hear me. You were made in the image of God, which means you have an attribute of God. That divine attribute is that when Satan slithered his way or, or flew into that tree and he started lying to, to Eve... As soon as she took the fruit and ate it and wandered off and found Adam, and Adam had to say, I want Eve more than I want God. Jesus comes looking for them. And in effect, what He said was, not so fast, Satan. You've stolen. You've lied. You've deceived. They took the bait. And now you think they're yours. But you didn't make them. You didn't breathe life into them. And while they've sold themselves to you, think bondservant. Think Satan poking a hole in their ear. You're mine. You chose me. Jesus says, I am keeping a divine endowment. The whole visage of God has not been marred in the face and heart and the mind of man. They can still Choose And Satan says, oh no, they can't, they're mine. Jesus says, I will pay the price. The lamb and its blood represents me. That blood of Christ kept the door open for a divine right to be exercised by you and I. God's omniscience, for all of you philosophers, has to bump into my God-likeness to make up my own mind. I don't know how you balance the two out, but I am absolutely confident that you cannot have an omniscient God who already knows that I'm going to hell and have an omnipotent God who's doing everything He can to stop it. I don't know how you bring these two things together, but I do know this. Beyond the realm of my understanding is the knowledge that I have the divine right given to me by God to choose, and God is working for me to choose Him. Put that up against predestination, why don't you? If He can win by knowing the future, can He not win by turning my heart? Yes, the stubborn rebel can say no, but why would you resist such love? Indeed, friends. We are living in the most momentous times. And as a church, we ought to be rallying and coming together so the world can know they can decide. And some of these things you've heard are flat-out lies. God is good. There's beauty in holiness. 
He is love. And yes, he's pushing back the final retribution of the rebel, hoping that he should not have to weep in secret. Indeed, this morning, you need to understand some things are mysteries, but one thing is not a mystery. Nobody will burn in hell forever, and nobody's burning now. Glory, hallelujah. The truth of the matter is, I get to choose, you get to choose. God protected my choice. He's not going to ride roughshod over it. You can take your doctrine of predestination, but you better bump it into the idea that God Himself showed up with His promise of His own blood. He showed up in person. He's showing up again, and He hasn't changed. I have a living hope because Jesus has protected my right to choose, and today I choose Jesus. Friends, walk with Him in humility. Study this Word. Don't let the trifling things of this world rob you from knowing this. Get into the book. Give up on some of these other things that pop up on your screen. The world needs to know, and you need to be able to explain it. You need to be able to give a reason for your faith. In the last 45 minutes, I've had slides and time to talk, but you ought to try to internalize it yourself. Get yourself some colored pencils. Go through your Bible and mark it up. So if you ever needed to explain it, you wouldn't be depending on a computer or someone else's presentation. But if you need that, direct them to a website. Send them to Amazing Facts. Send them to Jesus on Prophecy. But today, friends, I want you to know something. You're a child of the King, and you get to choose. And should you choose to not be with God forever, He will respect your choice. He's a good God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this gathering the glorious rejoicing in song, the beautiful truth that brings consistency to the gospel message. I'm praying, Lord, for those for whom this is the very first presentation. I'm asking, Lord, that they would be noble students of the Word and pray the prayer of Proverbs, that they would trust in You with all their heart, lean not on in their own understanding, in all their ways acknowledge You, and trust You to direct their path, Lord. Either this is glorious, glorious truth, and the Spirit is confirming it, or it's not. Lord, thank You that it is. Now bless us in this day. May we take time to stop and think. Forgive us when we've had our noses in the screens and things in our ears and it's not been directing us to the most sublime and glorious, deepest of thought. Help us to press together. Help us to draw near to You. Bring us back this evening, Lord, for the concert and the presentation. And may we go on our way rejoicing, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.